0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. What a a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus is the name, the name of of all names. How fitting, because today as we look at the book of Acts, as we are in chapter 4 now, the name, that phrase, the name, comes up seven times in this story that we're looking at in the book of Acts of a man who got healed, he got healed in the name of Jesus and the name of Christ, the name, the name, the name, that phrase is repeated seven times as that became a question as to how the man got healed and in whose name. That name is Jesus. Thank you, Austin and Tim, beautiful. I invite all of you now as we continue our worship, looking to God's word, where we hear him speak, that is, those of us who have ears to hear and with the help of the Holy Spirit, who is our Teacher, those of us who know God, with his help we can understand Scripture, which is how God speaks to his people. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. Before we go to Acts chapter 4, I want to read two passages from Luke. The first one is in Luke chapter 12, if you have your Bible, I wanted to read just follow along on a couple of verses there. Sermon today in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. We're going through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, really story by story, event by event. Acts chapter 1 and 2 go together, the events surrounding the day of Pentecost, and and then Acts chapter 3 and 4, they actually go together as one event and story as well, surrounding this amazing miracle where a 40-year-old man who was born lame was healed instantaneously in the name of Christ through the vehicle of the apostle Peter publicly in the temple at the time of prayer created quite the stir and we've made our way through most of that story. Now we're going to head to the conclusion of that story. of This miracle that was a blessing to many that created fear and awe in others and also created a hostile reaction to just a minority of those who were there who didn't like the miracle. They viewed it with Utter disdain as they were threatened by it, and in view of that theme that we're going to see in acts four one through twenty two today I want to read this this is a promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. it was a promise, but also a warning. Jesus trained his twelve apostles for three years, three plus years for full time ministry when he would leave as they would be his ambassadors continue on his ministry, kind of like their seminary training, and maybe midway through that, not quite sure a year plus before Jesus Died, ascended and went back to heaven. He's talking to his disciples, actually a massive crowd of people, but he was also addressing his disciples with these words in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, specifically warning his disciples, specifically the apostles. For the most part, for the three and a half years that the apostles were with Jesus on earth during that training time. They were really protected by Jesus. They were in his shadow. They were under his wing. At times they were mocked and ridiculed, but there wasn't really an imminent threat to their physical safety during that time. So during their seminary training, they didn't really know what it meant to be persecuted for the name of Christ, like they would know and face after Jesus left. And so this was one of the lessons that Jesus repeatedly said in Warned them about, but probably didn't fully sink in until it actually happened much later. So Luke 12, I believe, is a year or plus before the events of Acts chapter 4. This is amazing, the detail with which Jesus spoke as a prophet of God, as the Messiah, but also as the God-man. And he warned them and said in verse 11, They, when they bring you before they, that's the enemies, those who hate Christ, who reject the message, They, they're Jewish people, they're Jewish leaders because it has to do with, they bring them to the synagogue. So he says to his disciples, when your enemies, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. So at some point, apostles, disciples, you're going to be brought by Jewish leadership, by the authorities of the Jewish religion in Jerusalem specifically, you're going to be brought to the authorities. You're going to be arrested for preaching in my name by the Jewish leadership. And when that happens, do not worry. Do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. Verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And trust yourself to the Spirit of God. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 4. This happens uh, and this is fulfilled in detail. And keep that phrase in verse 12 the holy spirit and his work in mind as we read the story so that was maybe a year plus before christ left then later on and just weeks before his death now it's fast forward he gives a similar reminder acts chapter i mean sorry luke chapter 20 he says this luke chapter 21 uh, starting at verse 12 again a similar reminder we had john 15 read to us earlier where jesus said pretty much that the last week of his life, that the world hates you. They're going to be hostile to you. They hate you because they hated me. They hate my message. They hate what I stand for. They hate the truth. They love the darkness. They'll react accordingly. So Jesus tried to prepare them for this resistance and this persecution and this hatred. And in Luke twenty-one twelve, Jesus warns his apostles again, before the end of the age, all that stuff, they, there it is again, your enemies, Jewish leadership, those opposed to Christ, they will lay their hands on you. They're going to arrest you. Lay your hands. That's a technical phrase for they're going to arrest you. And what is your crime? You preach boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. You preach the gospel. Uh, they will arrest you. They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you to the synagogues and to prison. They're going to throw you in prison for being a Christian. That happens in Acts chapter 4. They will bring you before kings and governors for my name. So you're going to be arrested by the authorities Because of me, because of your stance of me, what you believe about Jesus, and for preaching in my name. So that's a key phrase there. Uh, You're going to be imprisoned for my name's sake. And seven times in Acts chapter 3 and 4, that phrase, the name, the name, the name. What In what name do you do this? By what name do you do this? And then Jesus says in Luke 21, it will lead, this is amazing, you're going to be arrested for my name, but it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. You'll have a jail ministry, and that is exactly what happens. Or God, through being arrested, will put you in places you otherwise wouldn't be able to go, where you otherwise wouldn't have an elite audience of influential people. So God's going to turn this bad thing, this arrest into a good thing. He works all things together for good. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. So when you do get arrested in my name, persecuted in my name, brought before the authorities in my name, don't defend yourself. So keep that in mind as we watch Peter and John as they are arrested, they go to jail, they go to court, they are on trial. And let's listen to Peter and see if he defends himself. Hey, why, why are we arrested? We didn't break the Mosaic law. This is illegitimate. You're abusing your authority. What do you think you're doing? I want out. I want a, I want a phone call. Let's see if Peter defends himself at all. Jesus said, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand, to defend yourself. Verse 15, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. This is a promise from Jesus. Let's see that based on Peter and John's response spontaneously before this intimidating kangaroo court of the 71 most influential people in Jerusalem at the time, what kind of response Peter and John give. If they cave under pressure, as they've done in the past, if they lack courage, if they're unwilling to speak up boldly, or let's see if they're given supernatural wisdom by God to speak, and that wisdom is so heavenly and so defined and so confounding that the leadership has no response. They are tongue-tied, and they don't know what to say in response to Peter and John because the words Peter and John spoke or speak are the words of God himself, and God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom, so... A very specific background. Let's now go to Acts chapter 4 and pick up the story just by way of review. For those of you maybe who haven't been here, we are going through the book of Acts. It's the birth of the church, the history of the church, the progression of the church, and many other themes along the way. So far, we've done Acts chapter 1, which was the ascension of the Son. We did Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes to you. We did Acts chapter 3, crippled beggar is set free. Now we're in Acts chapter 4, where John and Peter preach some more. Let's go ahead and look at it. I called this Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, the first assault on the church. Because the church began at Pentecost. There were, God blessed, there were, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people that believed and were converted and baptized, in addition to the 120. uh, The church of Jerusalem just exploded. The apostles continued in their practice of going to the temple regularly. There was the daily prayer time at the temple in Jerusalem. Early in the morning, then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the apostles, they didn't stop going to the temple, they continued to go to the temple. They probably went there every day. As a matter of fact, they would meet outside in one of the courtyards of the temple in Solomon's Colonnade that was connected to the temple proper. It was public. They didn't have a church building, there was no such thing. They didn't have a home that could accommodate now 3,120 people, but Solomon's Colonnade in the courtyard of the temple could accommodate hundreds if not thousands of people, thousands of Christians who have now affiliated with the church of Jesus Christ, headed by the 12 apostles. And so they're going, so this crowd of Christians is growing day by day. They are all Jewish, Jewish converts. They're not stopping going to the temple, so they continue to go to the temple. And they're now understanding temple rites and temple sacrifices in view of the fulfillment through the person of Jesus Christ. So there's no conflict. They're completed, fulfilled jews they embrace the real truth of the old testament and moses as it was originally given and so this massive crowd is growing more and more and they're going to the temple every day and at the temple there are those who are in charge and oversee the temple primarily it's the priests and the sadducees they have that's the jewish leadership that has the authority over the temple they monitor the temple They actually have temple police who are responsible for maintaining law and order around the temple. They're looking out for wrong behavior, wrong teaching, suspicious uh, behavior, suspicious people. They have the authority to do that. They have the authority over the sacrifices. They have the authority over the buying and selling of sacrifices. And so the Sadducees, the aristocracy of the Jewish leadership, those who are well-to-do, and also prided themselves on being trained theologians in the rabbinical schools, They were in charge of the temple, all of his activity and the entire precinct and all of the facilities. And so they monitored and they policed, they micromanaged what went on. And all of a sudden there's this mushrooming crowd of these Christian people who are beginning to be noticed, who went unnoticed initially, at least in the first days, if not the first weeks. But the crowd is getting so big in terms of the church they can't be hidden anymore from the view of the Jewish leadership. And so it all comes to a head here in Acts chapter 4. And so Peter and John go to the temple to pray at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And Peter does a miracle in the name of Jesus Christ and heals this man who had been born lame. He's up, he's jumping around, he's hanging on Peter and John. Peter and John go into the temple. They do their temple deeds and whatever else, their prayer time. Then they leave temple proper and they go over to Solomon's colonnade and then a throng of hundreds if not thousands, thousands actually of people who were there followed them in fascination having seen the miracle, trying to figure out who are these guys that did that miracle, how in the world did they do that miracle that was unprecedented, we'd never seen anything like it. And this is like three o'clock and on, going, moving now towards sundown and evening. And there is an accumulation and an amassing of hundreds and thousands of these practicing Jewish Worshippers, over in the corner of the massive solomon's courtyard now and they're now being noticed by the leadership the jewish leadership they don't like it they are suspicious of what's going on who are these people what's that massive crowd doing over there they are not under our jurisdiction we did not approve this they didn't get a license from us they're not listening to our teaching Who in the world and what in the world is going on? So they need to investigate, and they do. And so that brings us now to Acts chapter 4. So that's the scene. Peter and John, along with the other apostles, are teaching to these massive crowds, hundreds and hundreds of people. No doubt it is tight. It is congested to accommodate all of these people. Peter and John are preaching. They're following up, answering the question, why are you amazed? Peter just preached the gospel. He told the Jews, you're responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. He's the one that healed this man. He has risen from the dead. He is alive. You killed him, but it was by God's plan. You are guilty. You are culpable, yet there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. He died for sin. You need to repent and believe in him, and if you do, you will be forgiven. And you have the promise of inheriting the resurrection of from the dead if you reject Jesus Christ there will be punishment for you there will be condemnation there will be destruction he says destruction eternal hell the wrath of God will abide on you if you continue to reject your very own Messiah Jesus Christ risen from the dead so here's Peter John the Apostle preaching and if not the 120 uh, other believers preaching to this massive crowd of people and so that brings us to the context now of Acts chapter 4 let's go ahead and look at it where we see the first assault or persecution on the church of Jesus Christ. I broke it up into five sections as well. Just go through the narrative. Very simple, almost self-explanatory, true events. Let's go ahead and look. And the first thing that happened in Acts chapter 4 is they were preaching to the people, which I call the incarceration, the incarceration of the apostles, the first four verses, starting at verse 1. Let's look at it. So as they were speaking to the people, as Peter and John and the apostles were preaching to the people, They're preaching the word, we know that later on in the passage in verse 4. They're speaking, they're speaking about Jesus, they're speaking about the gospel, they're speaking about resurrection, that was a huge point of emphasis. This is all under the summary of the word, the logon, the logos, the word, the word of God, the scriptures, the written scriptures, the revealed scriptures directly by the Holy Spirit given to the apostles, some of which has not yet been written down. So as Peter and John and the apostles are preaching to the people, the priests, these are unbelieving priests. This is, these are leadership over those who served in the temple. Jewish priests. Some of these priests were the same people who falsely accused Jesus, had him arrested and crucified. These priests. Unbelieving priests. The priests and the captain of the temple guard. This, the captain of the temple guard was the second most influential person around the temple next to the high priest himself. The captain of the temple guard was second only to the high priest, and he was like a policeman. And he had the authority to maintain order around the temple. And in addition to the priests, we don't know how many, and the captain of the temple guard, the policeman, and the Sadducees, a plurality of the Sadducees came up to Peter, John, the apostles, and this massive crowd over in Solomon's courtyard. The Sadducees were one of the main sects of Jerusalem. We know that. The Sadducees were like I said the aristocracy. They were in the upper echelon of the social structure among the Jewish leadership. Uh, they were more political than the Pharisees. They would like to hobnob with the Romans because Rome, Rome had the ultimate authority. So they were appeasers and compromisers with Rome. They probably dominated the Sanhedrin, the 71 men who constituted, constituted the highest authority in Jerusalem at that time, it was probably dominated by Sadducees. Sadducees were liberal in their theology. They did not believe in angels. They denied some miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead at all. No one would be resurrected from the dead. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't accept any of the rest of it. And they had the power and the authority over the temple precinct. So these are the Sadducees. The Sadducees also included the high priestly family, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, who was the high priest who had the authority to condemn Jesus to death. Caiaphas was the high priest. He was a Sadducee. His father-in-law was uh, also a Sadducee. Annas, who was uh, served as high priest before him and was still alive and had great weight and influence. So A plurality of authoritative Sadducees. They came upon the apostles. And verse 2 says, being greatly disturbed. They are irritated. They are agitated. Their authority is being usurped. These miscreants or whoever they are that are unknown, they're doing teaching and ministry and things behind the back without the approval of the Sadducees. That's why they're greatly disturbed. They are jealous. And so being greatly disturbed because they were, why were they disturbed? Two main things, because they were teaching the people. So Peter and John and the apostles, they were teaching. They were preaching the word of God on the temple grounds. In the mind of the Sadducees, the priests, you couldn't teach unless you had permission. You couldn't teach unless you had credentials, the proper credentials. You had to be trained in the proper rabbinical schools, which was usually rabbinical traditional Jewish schools in Jerusalem. The apostles were not trained in those schools. In other words, they didn't go to the right seminary. They have no business teaching the people. Who do they think they are? So that's what they were disturbed about. They're teaching. And the the massive crowd. There are thousands of people listening to Paul, uh, Peter and John right now. So that was irritating. The second thing that was greatly disturbed them, was the content of their teaching. They are proclaiming in, in Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Now, that was irritating. Now, if this is Caiaphas and Annas, they know Jesus. It wasn't but two to three months ago where they arrested Jesus. It says for weeks and weeks they sought to kill him, says the Gospel of Matthew, waiting for the opportune time. Caiaphas knew who Jesus was. Annas knew who Jesus was. The Sadducees knew who Jesus was. The Sanhedrin knew who Jesus was. I thought we got rid of him, that rabble rouser, that troublemaker. I thought we killed him. Yeah, oh, yeah, the body's missing. I thought his disciples stole it. So they are greatly disturbed because these men are teaching in the name of Jesus and also the content is in Jesus' name, they are teaching the resurrection. The Sadducees denied resurrection. They thought it was heretical. It was absurd. So that's why they are greatly disturbed. They have no business teaching or teaching in Jesus' name and especially about the resurrection from the dead. And as a result, verse three, the Sadducees and these Jewish leaders, they laid their hands on them. That is Peter and John. That means they arrested them. No trial. They just arrested them. What was their sin? What law did they violate? What warranted this? What law of Moses did they violate that warranted being arrested instantly on the spot? As a matter of fact, in the book of Deuteronomy and other places, in the Mosaic law, the code in which they supposedly abided by followed. It was the law of the land. They needed to abide by it. And if you violated the law of Moses, yes, you should go on trial. But you were to be given a fair trial, and you were only to be convicted at the testimony of two or three witnesses after you've heard the witnesses. They bypass all that. They undermine and circumvent all of that of God's written law, and they just, in anger, laid hands on them, arrested them, and put them in jail. That was totally illegitimate. And they did it until the next day, for it was already evening, because they, their tradition was they wouldn't do court At nighttime. On a law which they violated when they had those false courts. Interrogating Jesus all through the night just months before. So they're utter total hypocrites. So this is bad news. This is the first official persecution of the early church. And no doubt. We trust or believe that the Spirit of God was working on the hearts of Peter and John and maybe bringing back to remembrance the things that their Lord Jesus had told them and taught them and prepared them for. This is the time. This is the minute. Who knows what they were thinking as they're put in prison for an entire night. No doubt that the Spirit of God was ministering to their hearts. So that is bad news, but the good news is in verse 4. Many of those who had heard the message. So Peter and John were allowed to preach and teach long enough to get the complete gospel message out to these people, answer their questions, and allow the Spirit of God to work on the hearts of many that as a result, despite the fact that the apostles were arrested and confined and jailed and muzzled and stopped, God's word couldn't be arrested, confined, muzzled, and stopped. The truth goes on. The truth is living. The truth had already been dispensed. It does its work. The Spirit of God is doing its work on the hearts of the people, and many, their hearts are enlightened, their eyes are open, spiritual deception is removed, satanic blindness is done away with, and they see the glorious light of the gospel. They're convicted, and that's why verse 4 says, but many of those who had heard the message or the word believed, right there on the spot. Isn't that awesome? In the midst of a trial, in the midst of persecution, God overrides that. He's true to his promise of Romans 8, 28, one of our favorite verses, Right? God works all things together for good for those who love him. God works the bad things together for good to accomplish his purposes, his will, even in the midst of worse circumstances. And so I'd encourage you with that. Any of you that maybe had a bad week, a trying week, a down week, a low week, a horrible week. Are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Are you secure in your love of God? Does Romans eight twenty eight apply to you in your circumstances, regardless of how bad it was? Just like here, God works all things together for good. God works all things together for good for those who know him, for those who love him. This is a promise that is true still for us today. And that's what God does here. Many of those who heard the message that the apostles preached believed. And get this, verse 4, God continues to grow the church. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Keep in mind that on the day of Pentecost, there's 120 Christians. They preach the gospel. 3,000 people get saved and baptized. Now the church is 3,000 plus, And just maybe days, if not weeks later, they preach again. And now 5,000, it says men in verse 4, that's males. What it means is in addition to women and children. Why? Well, why did they just say 5,000 men? Do they like men better? No, it's just easier to count because there could have been 10,000 plus people that were saved that day. Okay, let's just count the men and then you probably got an equal amount of women and uh, 2.7 children. So this was a summary number that was given. 5,000 of the men that they could even, arithmos er, eryth, is the word, that they could count and register and formally identify of those who believed and no doubt probably were baptized. The number in Solomon's colony that believed were 5,000 men, which tells you thousands more fit in that Solomon's uh, porch yard which kind of gives you an idea of how jam-packed it was and what a spectacle it was. No wonder the Jewish leadership was concerned and threatened and suspicious. The apostles had taken all the people away, all the worshipers. 5,000. Luke is going to continue throughout the book of Acts, show that Jesus is true to his word when he told Peter and the apostles before his death in, in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. You don't build the church. No man builds the church. No human philosophy or methodology builds the church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail, nothing will stop the forward progress of God's holy church through the ages. And Jesus is the master architect. And this is living evidence of it. He adds 120, he adds 3,000, he adds 5,000 more. And then in Acts chapter 5.14 it says... God's church continued to grow. In Acts chapter 6 verse 7, it continued to grow and God added to the people who were believing. In Acts chapter 9 verse 31, it says all throughout Judea, the church continued to grow. Those are all fulfillments of Jesus' word. I will build my church and Jesus is building the church today. Jesus is building GBF. He's building individual believers. He's building the corporate church locally here. He's building other local churches around us. He's building local churches around the world universally. He's building the church all throughout church history for 2,000 years. He will continue to build his church until he returns again to receive his bride. So despite the incarceration where they try to shut down the apostles, they can't shut down the living word of God and the invisible work of the Holy Spirit. So it goes on. Point number two is the allegation, the allegation of the Jewish leaders, verses 5 to 7. So they, they arrest them, they put them in jail, they have court the next day. And verse 5 says, on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes. So those three words together, rulers, which is the chief priests, elders, which is the leader of influential Jewish families, and the scribes, those who wrote down the word of God, preserved it, passed it on, which included many times some of the Pharisees. The rulers, elders, and scribes actually constituted the Sanhedrin, that ruling body. It's like the Supreme Court or the full Congress in the United States. It was the ultimate authoritative ruling body. Seventy-one men, seventy-one elite men, and they were going to conduct a formal trial. They met in a body, uh, a, a house, in uh, actually a part of the temple. Uh, Precinct. There was a place where the Sanhedrin would meet and have trial, like the Supreme Court, and they would meet in a semicircle, half circle. And no doubt the high priest would probably be in the middle of that circle, and whoever was on trial would stand before them. The Apostle Paul had to face this. Stephen has to face this. Jesus had to face this. And now Peter and John are there before the Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. There are 71 men. In the event of a tie, if they have to vote, the high priest gives uh, the tie-breaking vote. Here, they seem to be unanimous. They despise the apostles. They despise Jesus. They despise the resurrection. They have an agenda. They've already made up their mind. This is a kangaroo court. This is not real justice. They're picking up where they left off with Jesus. Well, on the next day, the Sanhedrin gathers together in Jerusalem. And who's there? Annas, the defrocked high priest. He has no business being there. He was run out in 15 A.D. He's still there and carries influence. He's called the high priest because he used to be. Four of his sons served at high priest as well at one time. Verse 6. So not only Annas is there, but also Caiaphas, probably the current high priest. Caiaphas, the same one who condemned Jesus Christ to death and spit in his face, according to the Gospel of Matthew. And then uh, John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Uh, these are... There was uh, many of these high priests and former high priests, they were of the same family. So that's suspicious. That is nepotism of the worst order. Also, it's just a few that, even though there were 71 men and many other priests and 24 orders of priests, it was just a few really that wielded all the power. So not only is it nepotism, it's also an illegitimate oligarchy. And they have an agenda. They're not interested in justice. But anyway, here's the seventy-one. Uh, members of the Sanhedrin convening official trial and court and I'll, I'll guarantee you maybe not guarantee but probably who is not there on the Sanhedrin who maybe used to be is Joseph of Arimathea maybe he resigned because I believe Joseph of Arimathea became a believer at the time of the crucifixion of Christ he used to be a part of the Sanhedrin or he was an influential Jew Maybe he's resigned. Maybe he's now with the Christians who are on trial. Maybe Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, Jesus called. Maybe he's not there. Maybe he resigned as well and was emboldened upon the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and the empowerment through the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. So now now maybe Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are on the outside. And maybe somebody who is on this board of 71 in judgment is Saul of Tarsus. He was, a Pharisee of the, he was a leading Pharisee, and there were Pharisees who served on the Sanhedrin. It was made up of the most influential Sadducees and Pharisees, and no doubt it could very well have been Saul of Tarsus who would become the Apostle Paul, which would make sense of how in the world Luke could have this information given to him of what actually went on behind closed doors in that trial when nobody else was allowed to be there as they were interrogating John and Peter. And then maybe Paul gets saved later and says, man, you wouldn't believe that day. Here's what happened. Could be. So there they are. Verse 7, when they had placed them in the center, that's to intimidate, to look down upon, to frighten, to manipulate. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire. By what power, by what authority, or in what name? Have you done this? Well, I think they already knew what name. Because they heard the hubbub all throughout the temple with hundreds and thousands of people. Did you see this miracle? This man was healed in the name of Jesus. That's why they were so angry. They were preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. So now on trial, their first question out of the gate is, by what power? And in what name? And man, Peter was loving that. You couldn't have asked a Better bring it on. That is a question I want to answer. Now, Peter is supposed to be on trial, but look what happens and look what God does. In what name have you done this? Moving on to the third point there, and that is the confrontation. The confrontation. The confrontation by the Sanhedrin? No. The confrontation by Caiaphas and Annas? No. The confrontation by Peter, the criminal who's on trial. Peter's been transformed. In fear and in lack of courage. And in waning faith, Peter denied Christ at the most important time of Christ's life, three times. But Peter was restored by Jesus, and Peter has been empowered with the indwelling Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. This is a new Peter. This is a courageous Peter. This is a trained and mature Peter. This is a Peter led by the Spirit of God. This is a Peter who realizes now he has no resources in and of himself. And it's a bold Peter, a fearless Peter, a a Peter really who's willing to die. Jesus told him at the end of the gospel, John, Peter, you're going to die. You're going to die for me. So it's the confrontation by Peter. He He turns around and puts these guys on trial. Now, Peter did say in his epistle in chapter 2 and reminded Christians, submit to, the gov- submit to all governing authorities. Now, when Peter said that to a bunch of Gentiles in Gentile churches, the governing authorities were pagan, idolatrous, immoral, and corrupt to the core. You talk about compromised politics. We don't know anything of what that is like compared to what it was historically and even in the days of the... Nevertheless, Peter said, submit to every governing authority. If your king is a pagan, submit to the king. If the king's laws are pagan, submit to the laws. Be a submissive citizen. Do not be a troublemaker. Peter still believes that. He wrote it. Peter will live by that. Except for the one exception is when the law of man contradicts the law of God. And that's what's happening here. And that's why he needs to confront these people. Verse 8 through 12. Then Peter, get this, filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is. Not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But not every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit at any given moment. I'm always filled with the Holy Spirit. His presence is always with me. I am not always filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit means controlled by the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being obedient at any given moment, being in the will of God. Because there are times as a Christian I'm not in the will of God. And when I'm not in the will of God, serving my own interests, pursuing my own agenda, relying on my own strength, I am not filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul had to remind the Galatians and Ephesians, it is a command, continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because that goes against our very sin nature, we want to do our own thing but in this moment, Peter had been prepared, he'd been in jail, he'd been in prison probably meditating, talking to God, remembering the words of Jesus, the Spirit of God was ministering to him and in this moment he was filled with the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the promise that Jesus told him, don't worry about what you're going to say, don't worry about defending yourself, the Spirit of God will speak to you, he will minister to you he will control you if you allow him to, if you humble yourself and bow your knee and don't rely on your own resources but only the resources of God and that is what Peter does here, he is filled with the Spirit of God and what he said is amazing it is profound and it silenced them and here's what he said rulers and elders of the people so he's showing respect he's honoring the court and the authority that God has established he doesn't mock them like Paul does later by mistake in the book of Acts when Paul says to the high priest God smite you you whited wall and they slapped Paul. <laughs> you don't talk to the high priest like that. And then Paul's like, "Oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. Forgive me. I only say that to my neighbors." But anyway, um, <laughs> Peter has—he's living by the standard that he knows is true. He has respect for these leaders, rulers, and elders of the people. If we are on trial, this is an incredible statement. Uh, if we are on trial today for a benefit, di- why are? Why did you arrest us? Why did you arrest me and John? I mean, it's like. They ask him a question and he's turning around and kind of asking them a question. He's kind of ignoring their question initially. Wait, why are we on trial today? Why are we in jail? Oh, for doing a good deed. Oh, for healing a man who couldn't walk for 40 years. For helping someone. For a good deed. A kind deed. For showing love. Oh, that's why we're on trial? So he wants to set the record straight. He's a truth teller. If we were on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man... As to how this man has been made well. Yeah, well, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. But by the I'll answer your question now, by what name, which means by what authority, by the name of Jesus Christ. We did this thing. It doesn't stop there. He says By the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Oh, man, that got under their skin. The Sanhedrin was filled with 71 men who were from one place only, and that was Jerusalem. They were the purists. They went to the authorized rabbinical schools. Nazareth? I mean, up in compromised, half-breed, hybrid, Samaritan, Gentile, Pagan territory, Nazareth. What good thing comes out of Nazareth? Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. He's also trying to reveal and remind them who who Jesus was, because that would remind them of that, because Jesus was kind of a common name. Yeshua. Jesus in Greek. Yeshua in Hebrew. What is that? Get this, it means the Lord saves. It means Yahweh saves. That is his name. Yahweh saves. And what name did you do this? We did this in the name of Yahweh saves. God saves. The Sadducees had to agree with that. Yahweh was in the Pentateuch. Yahweh was the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh was the God of Moses. Yahweh was the Savior. How could they disagree with that? We do this in the name of the one true God of Israel. Yeshua of Nazareth. In their mind, a contradiction. In the name of Mashiach, Yeshua, God, Yahweh, say, Mashiach, the anointed one, promised in your scriptures in the Pentateuch, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. Now who's on trial? Whom God raised from the dead. This is the third time that, that Peter has done that in three sermons. The day of Pentecost, he's talking to the Jewish uh, man, on the day of Pentecost, he said, Jesus Christ, in whom you crucified. And in the sermon that he just gave after the miracle to all those people that were there, Jesus, whom you crucified. And they did, the Jewish mob. And now it's the leadership. That you crucified. Literally, you did it, Caiaphas. You did it, Sadducees. You had him crucified. Speaking of Romans 8.28... Here they are. Here's Peter and John unjustly on trial, falsely accused. They haven't violated the law of Moses. They don't deserve any penalty. Oh, boy, Peter start arguing for being uh all your rights that were broken and that how you're justified and how you should be released immediately and how they misunderstood you and you don't belong there in prison. You don't belong on trial and you shouldn't be subjected to this and your your rights are being violated. You don't hear any of this from Peter. Because Peter's entrusting himself totally to God's will, God's providence, and the moving of the Holy Spirit. And this is absolutely ideal for Peter. Peter wanted to preach, and he wanted to preach the name of Christ, and he wanted to preach uh, the gospel wherever he could go. And what is maybe one of the most influential, best audiences that Peter could have to preach the gospel? Is the leader, the authoritative leadership of Jerusalem's religion. That is the Sanhedrin. It is difficult to get them all in one place ever, and here it is. A divinely appointed audience that Peter never could have imagined. Or We have the entire Sanhedrin in front of us as an audience where we can preach Jesus. And Peter does. And when you preach Jesus, you must point out sin. You are a sinner. You have sinned against God, your creator. You have sinned against Jesus, the Savior and judge. And you must repent. In essence, that's what... Jesus does. I mean, what Peter does. That's the message that he preaches to these men, these 71. And it was efficacious. Uh, the initial response wasn't good because they're going to take Peter and John and they want to give them a, a sentence or a penalty. And later they're actually going to arrest them again. And then they're going to beat them physically. And then they're going to give them a gag order. And a restraining order. So there's not the, these positive responses after preaching the gospel. Well, the gospel didn't work. It didn't, it wasn't efficacious. It didn't work on their hearts. It didn't change. Nobody responded to the gospel. Yet later on in the book of Acts, I think it's in Acts chapter six, there's a phrase in there that says, as God continued to grow the church, many of the priests began to obedient, began to be obedient to the faith. That is amazing. Weeks go by and it says God continued to grow the church and many of the priests began to be obedient to the faith. You know who that is? That is some of these guys. The Sanhedrin was filled with priests. It's amazing. The gospel, it is powerful. It is the power of God to save. Jesus Christ whom you crucified, verse 10, whom God raised from the dead in accordance to Scripture. Really, they should know this. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. This is the name that we did it. It was the name of Jesus Christ. And this man here. So here's Peter and John. And apparently the man, the lame man is there as well before the Sanhedrin in the trial. It's like, where did he come from? Why is he there? Did he get arrested as well? doesn't say he got arrested. Maybe he was subpoenaed as a witness. But Peter points to him, this man right here, he got healed. You know it. You're in the temple every day. You saw this man begging for years, maybe decades. And he's healed. It's undeniable. A miracle was done. Verse 8, Peter is relying on the Holy Spirit of God to preach and do ministry. And then he relies in verse 11 on the Word of God to speak and do ministry. And that's how we as Christians should do ministry. We don't rely on our own strength. We rely on the Holy Spirit. And we rely on the power of the Word of God, and that's what he does in verse 11. Peter goes on to preach and teach from the Old Testament. That is the authority. By what authority do you do this? I do this on the authority of the person of Jesus Christ, but also the authority of Old Testament Scripture that is binding what you profess to believe. Or at least what you should believe, verse 11. So Peter quotes from the Old Testament in Psalm 118, verse 22. This Jesus whom you crucified, he is the stone which was rejected by you. The fact that you rejected Christ and had him crucified was predicted in Scripture. The builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. God brought him back from the dead and he is the foundation of the church. So he's teaching Scripture. They were irritated that he was teaching Scripture to the regular people. Now he has the gall to teach the Scripture to them in court. Verse 12, this is and this is one of our favorite verses. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Well, I know you hate the name of Jesus. You killed Jesus. You don't want the name of Jesus preached. You don't want us talking about Jesus. But I'll tell you what about that name, the name of Jesus Christ. It is the only way that anyone can be saved and come to know God. That is the power of that name. Jesus says there's only one way to be saved. This is actually echoing Jesus' own words about himself in John 14, 6. No one, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. There is salvation only in Jesus Christ and who he said he was in the Bible. This is the exclusivity of salvation. It is only in Christ. All other religions, apart from Christianity and Christ, don't lead to God. They are false religions. They are darkness. They are the wide, broad road to destruction. There's only one way, it's the narrow path. You know what? And that message irritates people. It it makes sinners angry. Two ideas. The idea that salvation is narrow, and also that salvation is only through the name of Jesus. We hear the name of Jesus, we are blessed, we rejoice, we want to worship. An unbeliever, for the most part, hears the name of Jesus, he gets convicted, he gets irritated, he gets angry. And just try it in the next conversation you have with an unbeliever. They will talk to you about God all day long. They will talk to you about evolution forever and creation. But once you start talking about Jesus, things are going to change. And that's what Peter does. He is Christ-centered in every sermon. That's the confrontation by Peter, and it is powerful. Jesus promised, you know what the Holy Spirit's gonna give you words to say? You're gonna confound them. You are gonna silence them. You're gonna shut their mouth. Your critics will have nothing to say. That is fulfilled right here. Number four, starting at verse 13, the stipulation from the Sanhedrin. Verse 13 says, now as they observe the confidence of Peter, Peter is bold. He is confidence, confident. He is fearless. He's accusatory. He's pointing his finger. He is challenging, he is condemning, he is confronting. And they see that now as they observe the confidence of Peter and John and understood <laughs> that they were uneducated. Ah grammar grammar from the word grammar, uh ah, without no grammar. Meaning they weren't formally trained in the acceptable rabbinical schools. Like I said, they didn't go to the right seminary. They went to the master's seminary or the cornerstone, some cheesy seminary. They didn't go to Duke Divinity School. It's literally what it means. They didn't get the right training, and they were untrained men. I mean, they weren't experts at. They weren't professional. The word idioti, idiots. They're, they're laymen. Who who do these guys think they are? They have an, a Galilean accent. Hokey from the woods. The Sanhedrin was amazed at this. Now, all the other Jews were amazed at the miracle. These guys aren't amazed at the miracle. They're amazed at the threat of Peter and John. They were amazed and began to wreck. Wait a minute. Wait, I know these guys. Peter, you know, and John followed Jesus to Caiaphas' house the night he got arrested. That is who Peter and John are in front of right now. So in verse 13, and they, wait a minute. I, I know that twang in his voice. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. These are those rabble-rousers from Galilee. And seeing the man who had been healed, standing with... so, And here's that happy old healed guy. He's just jumping up and down the middle of trial. He was irritating. And seeing the man who had been healed, it was undeniable, he got healed. Standing, he's standing, he was a layman with them. They had nothing to say in reply, just like Jesus said. Verse 15, but when they had ordered... So then they ordered them to leave the sand. Okay, you guys, you need to leave the courtroom and get out of here. 'Cause they didn't know what to do. They began to confer with one another. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Verse sixteen. What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place, the miracle is undeniable. And we can't just chalk it off to Satan because everybody out there believes it was a miracle from God that'll turn us against the people if we say it was from Satan. They've done that before. It was taken place through them as apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have seen this. They've heard about it. They've witnessed it. And it was undeniable. We cannot deny it. But so that it will be not, not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. Okay, we'll bring him back in and tell them they can't talk about Jesus anymore. How lame. Verse 18. So they summoned Peter and John back in and they commanded them not to speak. They gave him a gag order. This was official. Told them that you can't. No longer can you talk about Jesus anymore. Kind of like here in America, if you are a public school teacher, you cannot talk about Jesus. That's dangerous. That will psychologically warp our children forever. How dare you talk about Jesus? How dare you say Merry Christmas at Target if you work there? Really, that's what's going on here. Do you know if there are sixty countries in the world today where the name of Jesus is either illegal. Or there's overt persecution regarding his name. Started here. And Jesus promised it would be coming. Well, let's see if Peter and John are going to be obedient to that. That's verse 19 and following. And that's number five, the exoneration. Exoneration for faithfulness. John. Peter are exonerated; they're considered guilty by this man-made court, but they are innocent in the eyes of God because they've been obedient to God, overriding wrong rules of it. By the way, they were not consulting the written law, the Sanhedrin, and abiding by it, and saying, "Okay, here's where you violated the written law, and here's the consequence." They are bypassing; they don't want anything to do with the written law. They're making up their own law. You know what? We have politicians doing that today in our country. We have a constitution, we have laws, we have rules; it's encoded. And yet there's this flippancy, uh, let's just make up our own laws. Let's just flippantly define marriage in a twisted, perverted version. Who cares what God thinks? Well, how are they exonerated? They're exonerated by God, verse 19 to 22. But Peter and John answered and said to them, you don't scare us, you don't threaten us. They're not intimidated. They had utter confidence. Their confidence was in God and his spirit, not in themselves. And Peter with this amazing response. This is the wisdom of God. Whether it is right in the sight of God. They believed in God. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God. You be the judge. You answer the question. Given any situation, should a man obey God or a man? If the two laws contradict. They got caught. They couldn't answer that. Verse 20, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. <laughs> so they said, you need to shut up, stop talking about Jesus. And they said, we are not going to stop, uh, shut up and stop talking about Jesus. And they let him go anyway. <laughs> Verse 21, when they had threatened them. For, so that's why they threatened them a little more. What? How dare you? We just told you to not talk about Jesus. And you say you're going to keep talking about. Well, let me tell you. If you do. And they threatened them further and they did escalate the punishment because chapter 5 we're going to see they're arrested again and this time, next time they are beaten physically. It escalates even more and some of these apostles and Christians are going to lose their life. So it's beginning to percolate, verse 21, 4. They had threatened them further, they let them go. There it is, finding no basis on which to punish them. On account of the people, because so it wasn't just the law, it was on account of the crowd. That's what politicians do, you've got to appease the crowd. Put your finger in the air, go with, okay, where's the wind blowing in terms of the crowd and the masses and the fickle mob? On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened, this amazing miracle. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And they let them go. Absolutely amazing. Go to Philippians chapter 2 if you got your Bible with you. Like I said, the name, the name, the name. That came up seven times in this story. By what name do you do this miracle? In the name of Jesus we do this miracle. And by the name of Jesus is the only way that a a man or woman can be saved. So that's one of the themes. And that just reminds me of the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians chapter 2, He said this great truth about the name of Jesus Christ. Um, Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse um, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, Christians, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself when he came down here on earth, took on the form of a bond servant or a servant or a slave, and was made in the likeness of men. He became a human, God became a man, The God-man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He had a mission, it was to do one thing, and that was to die on the cross for the sin of the world in obedience to the Father. He did that, and God rewarded him accordingly. Verse 9, for this reason also, God the Father highly exalted Jesus by virtue of his resurrection, his ascension, and his current reign on high. The Father exalted Jesus and bestowed on him, here it is, the name, The name, what a beautiful name, bestowed upon him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. What name did God the Father bestow on the Lord Jesus when he exalted him? The name was Lord. He already had the name Jesus. But then the Father in a special way bestowed on him the name Lord Jesus became Lord by virtue of his obedience. He was always Lord, but was blessed by the Father in a special way, and he reigns as Lord. He is Lord of Lords. He is The the Father has given all judgment to Jesus as the, the Lord of every soul. And Paul says to every person that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, meaning that he is the master, there is no other, I am a slave, and I'm a slave, or I want to be a slave to God and to Jesus, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's if you believe in the gospel. And so if there are some here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you are not a Christian, you've never repented of your sin, you've never turned to him. Someday you're going to bow the knee to him. Every soul, according to Paul, is going to bow the knee to Jesus and call him Lord. Believers do it in this life. Unbelievers who die in sin and never repent, they will do that in the next life. And that's a frightening prospect because then they will be consigned to hell forever. That's what scripture teaches. So I would plead with you, bow the knee to Jesus now in this life. Repent to him, be saved, and he will answer that prayer and he will, he'll welcome you, he will forgive you by virtue of his death and resurrection. Well, with that, we have the privilege now to go to communion. Um, so let's go ahead and have our ushers get uh, communion ready. Jesus, uh, before he left, gave the ordinance of communion. He also gave the ordinance of baptism. The church was to practice until he returns again someday in the future. And every time that believe, every believer is invited to participate in communion with the cup and the bread, the cup and the bread are to remind us of Jesus, who he is, what he did for us, that he died for our sins. And God knows we need ongoing tangible reminders of the gospel, of what Jesus did for us, of our standing before him. We are sinful. He is sinless. He is holy. And so this is, a, a, and it's a time of celebration. That's what communion was designed by God to be. And so here's a verse I want us to meditate on while we are having communion. And so as the, as the men pass the plates, and uh, go ahead and grab the cup there. It's got the the juice and the bread in it. Hold it, pray for a minute or so quietly in your own heart and meditate on the reality of this verse out of Colossians 3. It's just a beautiful verse. It goes back to the basics of what it's all about and what Jesus did for us. In Colossians chapter 3. It's the fundamentals of Christian life, really. Verse 12 and following, it says, So as those who have been chosen of God, if you're really a Christian, if you're a believer, if you know God, You're taking communion today. Remember that you're holy. God's forgiven you of your sin. You're beloved. God loves you. He loves you because of Jesus. That's what God did for you. And in light of what God's done for you, let us as Christians do the following. Put on a heart of compassion. That's a love for people. Put on kindness. That means keep putting on. Keep being kind as Christ's people. Continue to be humble. Continue to be gentle. This is a great verse to practice at home with the family. You get familiar with people in your marriage and family. This is the hardest place to practice these Christian virtues. But this is what Christ calls us to. Practice humility, practice gentleness, uh, practice patience. have a long fuse. Don't blow up so easily. Bear with one another, tolerate each other. Tolerate their idiosyncrasies and the things that bother you and their weaknesses and foibles because we all have them. That's what it means. Bear with one another. And forgive each other. And it's present. Keep on forgiving each other. Keep on forgiving each other. Keep on, keep forgiving your spouse. Keep forgiving your, your husband. Keep forgiving your wife. Keep forgiving your wife. Keep forgiving your children. Keep forgiving your in-laws. If you're a Christian, Keep forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against them. Quit complaining about your spouse. Quit complaining about your kids. Quit complaining about your parents. Quit complaining about other believers. Quit complaining about people. That's sinful. Don't do it. But keep forgiving. Forgiveness is supposed to supplant complaining. And here's the most potent part of the verse, the end of verse 13. Just as the Lord Jesus forgave you, Christian. If you're a Christian, Jesus has forgiven all of your sins, all of my sins, past, present, and future. And the sins I keep repeating again and again and again. Jesus doesn't just give up. Oh, I give up. That's it. You're not saved anymore. No, it's all of our sins continually. So just as Jesus did that for you, then also you should reciprocate that and do that to your fellow believers. Keep forgiving, keep forgiving, keep forgiving. And there is no greater place than the time of communion to meditate and ask God to search our hearts and help us to be forgiving Christians so I'm going to just give you a minute now to go ahead and do that. And then we'll, we'll share together. So just pray in your own heart for a second. Jesus said to eat and drink in His name and in His in His memory. So let's eat and drink together. So allow me to pray for our closing song here. Father, we thank you for this day and our time together. For your goodness, for the answered prayers, which were many, some of which we were able to hear about today, and we give you the glory for it. Thank you for the, the Word of God. I pray that believers' souls were fed as we searched the Word together. Encourage all of us, after the model of Peter and John, as they were men just as we are. They were frail, they were weak and finite and yet they had the resources that we also have and that's the indwelling Holy Spirit the truth of your word love from you, the Father relationship with the Lord Jesus the company of saints in the church and the power of prayer we thank you for those resources Father. May we continue to Live by them again and again. We just pray that you're glorified. We commit this day to you all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.